This morning's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 15, verse 11 to 24. This will be on page 874 to 875 if you're following along in the Blue Pew Bibles. Again, Luke chapter 15, verse 11 to 24. If you're using the Blue Pew Bibles, page 874 to 875. Hear now the holy and inerrant word of God. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son, this my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, church, it's my privilege this morning to introduce to you Pastor Daniel Rickey of Hope Church Houston. It's a church that, uh, with which I share a deep affinity for, for their mission, their vision, and their leadership. Uh, Daniel is no stranger to HCC. He has preached here on a few occasions, and he has served in the past as one of the CCF retreat speakers, so some of you may uh, rem remember him. Uh, Daniel is married with four girls between the ages of three to seven. He is a great pastor, and he's been a good friend to me, so let's give a warm HCC reception to Pastor Daniel Riki. Well, good morning. I'm honored uh, to be here with you again. It's a privilege and a joy every time I get to spend a Sunday morning here at Houston Chinese Church. Uh, as Jason mentioned, got four daughters between the ages of three to seven, so feel free to keep praying for me as the, after the, the, the service ends. Uh, one of them was sick all night, too, so it's been a, it's been a fun morning in the, in the Reiki house. But uh, I'm so honored, especially to be here, uh, just because of my love for, for your pastor, Jason. Uh, he's, I think we've been friends for at least about seven years now at this point. 
And uh, it's been just a, a, a joy to get to see the impact that, that Jason has had on our city, the way that he leads other pastors around our city and uh, ministers to other pastors. And uh, it just really sets a, a good uh, culture uh, in Houston uh, with other pastors. And so I'm just so thankful for you, brother, and uh, so honored to get to be here where you're uh, with your flock today. So if you would, turn with me uh, to that passage that we just read in the book of Luke. It's about three-fourths of the way through the Bible. We're going to be studying that prodigal son parable this morning. You know, in my own journey uh, with the Lord, I feel myself constantly being uh, in need of a reminder of how good God is. Like the world around us, my flesh, the enemy, uh, are constantly trying to, to obscure that from us. Like, uh, and so we need to be reminded over and over and over again uh, just how good God is as our Father uh, and that we need to be reminded that we are His beloved kids. But I struggle with that big time. You know, I struggle to truly believe that, uh, to truly rest in it. I struggle to live as if that is true a lot of times, and I know that I'm not alone in that. And so my prayer for this morning is that, uh, that you would see to this, the, in this passage the lavish love that your heavenly Father has for you, even in your brokenness. And so before we dive into our passage, uh, I want to pray for us. God, we love you. And we know we love you because you loved us first. You pursued us. You rescued us from our sin. You pulled us out of darkness and brought us into your kingdom. You adopted us as your kids. You love us deeply, more than we can even fathom. And God, it's hard to live as if that's true a lot of days. It's hard to live as if I am your beloved son and I know that for my brothers and sisters, that's, that's got to be a struggle too. And so God, I'm praying that as we study this amazing passage today from Luke 15, that you would really instill that deep into our hearts, that we would really, truly, deeply believe that we're loved by you as our good Father. That we don't have to earn your affection. That we don't have to earn your approval. That you pursue us because you love us even in our brokenness. And so, God, I pray against the, any distractions, anything the enemy would throw at us anyway, that, that we would be tempted to doubt the truth of your word as we study this morning. And I pray that you would touch our hearts, that your spirit would flood us with your love, and that we wouldn't be able to push it away, and that it would change us in every part of our lives. So, God, I pray that you would move, that you would do what only you can do, that you would be glorified, uh, that you would advance your kingdom through this time this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's fifth grade, and I went on the uh, field trip to Washington, D.C. I don't know if you kids did that back in the 90s. Uh, that was kind of a thing. I don't know if they still do it, but it was my first time to ride on an airplane. I'd never ridden on an airplane before. Uh, and so uh, I was kind of scared, but I was really excited. Uh, and I was at the airport with my dad and my teachers, but my family wasn't coming with me. Like it was just my classmates and the teachers that were chaperoning. And a few minutes before the flight, my dad went to go grab a snack for me. Like they wanted to get me a special snack for the plane. So he was only gone about five minutes. But during that five minute window, they started to tell us to board the airplane. 
And so uh, being the mature fifth grader that I was, I just broke down crying and was just sobbing like that my dad wasn't here. I started hyperventilating. I think somebody was looking for a paper bag for me to, to breathe into. But like it was getting like heightened to like panic attack levels. And as my teachers were trying to comfort slash nudge me towards the terminal, uh, I hit that moment of desperation where I was just like hopeless, like, all right, I'm staying in Houston. I'm, I'm not going on this trip. Like, it's, it's over. And then at that last moment, I see in the distance my six foot eight dad in a dead sprint carrying a bag of Wendy's French fries uh, running across uh, the terminal. He, he arrived just in time to give me a hug, to encourage me, to give me the French fries and ketchup and uh, encourage me that it was all going to be okay. And I was able to board that plane with joy that morning, knowing my father's love. And in today's passage, we're going to see a similar picture of a desperate son longing for his father's love and a loving father running towards his hurting son. And we're going to be studying this famous parable of the prodigal son. But I hope that although it's really famous, and, and many of us are, are well, very familiar with it. Even if we don't have a background in church, we've maybe heard of it culturally. Um, I'm really excited for, for it this morning, particularly for those of us who uh, maybe feel far from God right now, or for those of us who felt weary or broken or unworthy of his love for some reason. I'm hoping that we will see this familiar, potentially familiar parable with fresh eyes and allow uh, the Lord to comfort us in some ways. You know, for those of us that are heavy with the weight of our sin that we haven't yet been able to conquer, uh, that we're longing for relief, that this parable would be that, that relief that we're longing for this morning. Because we're going to see the life-changing image of our uh, Heavenly Father. We're going to see that our Father runs towards us. And I'm praying that that's going to liberate us from anything that's weighing us down. So before we dive in, let's get some context. Back up with me and look at Luke 15, verse 1. Uh, if you're not used to looking at the Bibles, the chapters are the big numbers, the verses are the little numbers. So we're going to look at big number 15, starting right at the beginning of that chapter. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. It's talking about Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. So the religious leaders are grumbling that Jesus is hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners. That we see, we see this in verse 1 through 3. And Jesus responds by telling them several related parables aiming at showing God's heart towards sinners. So in verses 4 to 7 of Luke 15, Jesus likens God's love to a shepherd who leaves his 99 sheep in the field to go after the one that was lost. And then in verses 8 to 10, Jesus likens God's love to a woman who loses one out of her 10 coins and just turns the, the house upside down, looking everywhere until she finds that missing coin. So in each story, the clear message is that the Father pursues those that are lost and straying. And we're going to see that message even more vividly illustrated in our passage of the prodigal son. So let's jump to that now, starting in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Jesus sets the scene of our parable. Man's got two kids, two sons. Uh, the younger asks to have his inheritance early so that he can go off and party. 
And when he says, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me, uh, it, that's not just like, hey, give me some money. Like culturally, he might as well have been saying that he considered his dad as good as dead. And so can you imagine the depth of offense, but also pain and wounding that that would have inflicted on the father? Shockingly, though, the father gives him what he asked for. And then the younger son leaves the family, uh, goes to a foreign country, which carries with it a connotation of leaving the faith since worship of the true God was so closely linked to Israel and being in Israel. So then he, then he gets out of there and he blows the money on parties and prostitutes. And it's hard to imagine a more offensive and heart-wrenching series of events for this father to endure. His son telling him that he cares more about his money than his dad's life Uh, Then abandoning faith in God, presumably, abandoning the family, squandering years of hard-earned wealth on fleeting sinful uh, pleasures. As a parent, I'm sure it's overwhelming to think about how much pain this would have caused the father. You know, this isn't some deadbeat, abusive father whose son can't wait to get out of the house at 18. This represents our perfect heavenly father who is full of love and kindness from whom all good things are are coming out of. And so what his son has done is deplorable. It's evil and it's heartbreaking to his dad. You know, and I wonder if any of us can relate to the son in this. You know, maybe we wouldn't have admitted it uh, at the time, but Maybe sometimes have we just wished that God would just give us this this thing that we want and then just leave us alone to do whatever it is we want to do with it. You know, or or maybe it's even a little bit more subtle, you know, where perhaps we're wanting good things that would would come across as morally uh, good things, but we want them primarily for uh, how they will play into our own identity or make us look or make us look better or, uh, or, or more impressive to people around us rather than desiring to glorify God through those things. I know I've been there, uh, and I know that I'm prone to wander and uh, just like the sun, and, and even if it looks different in my life and in my culture, I'm so susceptible to this. Uh, I can still have that same brokenness inside me that I need to battle, and ultimately that I need Jesus to conquer and rescue me from. And, and I found that as the more I grow in Jesus, the more I realize just how much my flesh wants to go, just like the younger son, and, and how much I desperately need the power of Christ in me. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. So now we see the younger son hitting rock bottom. After callously wounding his father and his family, he blows his presumably massive inheritance in partying in a foreign land. It's kind of like he emptied out his college fund and his dad's 401k, went down to Cancun and spent it in a steady stream of frat parties for weeks at a time. And while he's the financial underwriter of all the, the fun, he's got companions, he's got friends, like he's got things going on. But then when the money runs dry and Cancun is hit with some economic hardship, all of a sudden, not only is he not getting invited to parties, he doesn't even have anything to eat. 
And I wonder if we've ever been there. You know, where the thing that we were looking to for escape or for pleasure or to build up our identity in some way suddenly betrays us. You know, this happens in really overt ways like in this story, but uh, there's, there's really innumerable subtle ways that this happens uh, in our lives as well. You know, when I was in high school, uh, being good at basketball was my identity. Uh, it was what I looked to for joy, uh, purpose, and meaning. It was what I focused my time and efforts on, uh, on doing well. And, and when I was playing well, when I was improving, when it was looking like I was on track to play college ball, like I felt like basketball was working for me, like this is going well. But then when I got injured and had knee surgery twice during high school or where my growth topped out at 6'7 instead of 6'10, like the doctors thought it was going to be, I know that sounds like really offensive when you're like not 6'7", but like when you're in basketball, like there's just, anyway, like I'm like, I'm like a guard size for like basketball. So like I needed three more inches, right? But like, so like when I didn't hit the size that I needed to hit, right? Or I'm having conflict with my coaches and my teammates. And finally, when the college scholarship offers never came and my dream of playing D1 ball came crashing down, basketball was no longer that source of joy and purpose and meaning that I'd expected it to be. My idol had betrayed me. And I was like the younger son waking up in a foreign land, not sure how I got there, and not sure where my next meal was coming from. And I'd guess that many of us can point to similar stories in our own journeys. You know, stories where we thought, if I could just get this, or if I could just do that, then I'd be happy. Then I'd matter. Then I'd be fulfilled. Only to be crushed by our inability to get it or crushed by the lack of joy it produced in us when we did get it and realized that it wasn't enough. This is the story of the younger son. He's abandoned his father in pursuit of pleasure and identity by his own means only to realize that the things he thought he wanted simply betrayed him. Look again at verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Scene shows just how far he's fallen. Not only is he broke and starving, but he's caring for animals considered unclean in the Jewish law. And to add insult to injury, he's seemingly considered of lesser value to the people in that country than even the unclean animals that he's taking care of uh, because they're getting treated and fed better than he is. Like he's jealous of the slop that the pigs are eating. He's gone from making it rain, wealthy, prominent, down in Cancun, to being considered less valuable than a herd of pigs. And can you imagine what that younger son would have been feeling in that situation. You know, think of the shame of being treated like an animal and having to scavenge for food. You know, or the regret of having wasted a fortune and having nothing to show for it. Or the pain of being abandoned by your so-called friends that you are partying with, or the fear of how you're even going to survive another day in this situation, or the guilt for how you have shamed your family and your father. You know, I wonder if any of us can relate to the prodigal in some ways. You know, have you ever felt the crippling guilt and shame 
over your past sins, maybe even still feeling crushed under the weight of it, you know, or, or felt hollow from the lack of fulfillment and that you've experienced and what you've been chasing after or felt so utterly consumed by the pain of the choices that you've made or felt so alone and worthless that you wondered if anyone would even care if you died. Have you ever wallowed in regrets that threaten to drive you crazy as you just play uh, the same situation over and over and over again in your mind, helplessly reliving the pain each time? Can we relate to that younger son here? When I was a kid, I really liked our church picnics we would have at the park at times. Uh, one of the things I always remember is they would have this big spread of like sweets and desserts. Like they had like every type of ice cream and cookie and cake, all the stuff that I normally didn't get. And I got like free reign on those occasions. My parents were like, you just do whatever you want. You can eat whatever you need to. And I was like so excited about that. But I also had all my buddies there and there was this merry-go-round that was really dangerous looking back on it at the time, like super unsafe. And, and it was one of those ones where like there was like enough of a gap that a kid could get like wedged under it while it was going. And, and it was just not a good thing. And we played dodgeball while we were on the merry-go-round. Like it was just like a, it was a wild situation. Like I don't know how they let us do that. But needless to say, like I'd be so big, busy, like recklessly playing uh, dodgeball on the merry-go-round that I would forget to get any sweets. And then I'd end up at home laying in bed like, man, I just blew my opportunity. Like, I didn't eat any of the sweets that I wanted, and I would just sit there thinking of all the different stuff that I had seen on the table that I didn't eat. And I'm being kind of playful with this illustration, and so I don't want to distract from just how much uh, pain and regret and shame that younger son was feeling in that moment that he was feeding pigs. Like, his regret and despair is real. Like, it's infinitely worse than me missing out on some desserts at the park. And I know he's not alone in those feelings. I know many of us can relate in some way in our own journeys. I know uh, that, that we've got stories of that regret that we wish we didn't have, but we do. And I think God wants to use this story to change our stories. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The younger son has hit rock bottom and realizes he needs to go home. But it's interesting to note his posture towards his return. He's right to realize that he would be better off being a servant in his dad's house than wallowing in this pigsty. Uh, but we also see that his thinking is still a bit skewed at this point. He presumes that if he repents, he can only expect partial forgiveness at best from his dad. He thinks his sin is so massive that he is no longer worthy to be called his father's son, and he simply wants to be considered one of his servants. In other words, he presumes that he has blown it so profoundly that he has undone his sonship. So he hopes that he can just maybe get to hang around on the fringes as a slave in his father's home. And so even when he returns home in desperation, he doesn't expect to be fully forgiven. And it really makes sense that he feels that, right? I mean, like, he's been a truly evil son. Like, he's told his dad implicitly that he considered him as good as dead. Uh, he's abandoned his family and his faith. He's wasted likely what would have been about a third of his dad's possessions on parties and reckless living. By all accounts, he's been a terrible son. 
So honestly, how could the prodigal son in any way expect to get forgiveness for his behavior? His reasoning kind of makes sense on some level, right? He really has blown it in epic proportions. And yet, on, his, on another level, his, his thinking couldn't be further from accurate. Our behavior does not change our identity. Our behavior may be out of line with what our identity actually is. But our identity remains the same. He was being a disobedient son, but he was still a son. His, uh, his, uh, his behavior has deeply pained his father, but the man that he has hurt is still his father. The prodigal makes the same mistake that many of us make when we presume that we can mess up enough to be disowned by our heavenly father. That our sin could somehow undo our adoption into God's family, uh, buying into the lie that the Father's love for us is conditional and based on how well we obey or don't obey. You know, think of the truth of Ephesians 1. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The Father chose us that we should be holy, not because we already were holy. He chose us because of the great love that he has for us, uh, and uh, it's not because of our ability to be good enough. He chose us according to his will, not according to our inherent awesomeness. The Father chooses us unconditionally, and he adopts us, and he seals us with his Holy Spirit who guarantees our inheritance for us. He guarantees it. We can't undo that with our sin, with our struggle, with our brokenness. It's it's precisely because of that sin in us and that brokenness in us that Jesus had to come in the first place. Because our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, and they rebelled against God, and they fractured everything. And, and they were separated from God, and now because of what they've done, we've all inherited that sinful nature from then, and, and we're all hostile to the loving rule of God. We all sin. We all choose our own way instead of God's way, and the penalty for that is hell. Eternal separation from God's goodness and hell. That's what all of us deserve because of our sin as human beings. But in his great love, God sent his son Jesus into human history to live a perfect life that we couldn't live, to willingly give his life on the cross to pay for sin. And then on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead, showing that he had accepted that sacrifice on behalf of sinners. And he's calling all of us to repent and believe, which means to turn from our sins and to trust only in Jesus to be saved. We're not trusting in our performance. We're not trusting our ability to obey. We're not trusting our religious works. We're not trusting our attendance at church. We're not trusting anything about ourselves. We're trusting only in Jesus. And if we'll do that, if we'll trust in Christ and surrender our life to him, he rescues us and he saves us and he fills us with his spirit and empowers us to live lives that bring him glory as he makes us look more and more like him until the day we're brought home to heaven. We're not saved because we're good enough. Jesus came to save us because none of us are good enough. We all need a savior. And it was Jesus' work that purchased our adoption into God's family. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, through faith, we really are children of God. We really are his beloved children because of the gospel. 
That's the truth of the gospel. And so if you're here to this morning and you don't know Jesus in that way, you haven't surrendered your life and trusted in Jesus to save you and to reconcile you, you're leaning on your own self to try to make it or try to do enough or you're looking to something else to give you identity or purpose, I'm telling you that you need to turn from your sins and trust in Christ and he'll rescue you. He'll forgive you. And I would urge you to do that today. Say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin against you and trying to live for my own glory and my own way instead of yours. I can't do anything to save myself, but I trust that you paid the price for me on the cross and I I want my life to be yours. And he'll rescue you and he'll save you and I pray that you'll do that today. So my four daughters have a unhealthy obsession with Nutella. I'm not, um, you know, Nutella sandwiches are something that I go to as a default when my wife is gone and I forgot to cook something in the crock pot, uh, you know, and so I'm, I'm kind of going either Nutella sandwiches or chocolate chip pancakes. Those are kind of like my two uh, go-tos. And dads kind of get a free pass on those things because we're just trying to, I mean, we need something to help us survive, right, when we have these types of situations. Um, but my girls, like, they struggle big time with self-control. Um, and so, like, they will have this propensity to do, like, Curious George-level climbing in the pantry to steal the Nutella uh, when we're not there. Um, I'll often walk into the kitchen and be like, girl, did you, uh, did you leave the Nutella out? Because I didn't leave the Nutella out, and I'll go to it, and, the, and I'll, uh, the, I'll, I'll grab it, and it's, like, empty. And so my hand goes flying, and the, and the top flies off, and there's a spoon inside of it of an empty Nutella jar. And so I'm like, all right. And so I follow the chocolate streaks around my house to my little girl uh, sitting there with just chocolate everywhere. And I'm like, hey, baby, did you just, ha- did you just steal all the Nutella? What? Occasionally, I'll hear a crash in the pantry and hear this just cry of pain and, and sobbing uh, as they've fallen trying to scale the, the mountain to get the Nutella. And you know what I'm not saying in that moment? Probably shouldn't have stolen Nutella and you wouldn't be bleeding right now. By the way, go get your Hello Kitty suitcase. You're kicked out of the family. Right? What I do to her as a loving dad, what I say to her is I run to her, I scoop her up in my arms, and I comfort her. I soothe her pain. I pray for her healing. I shower her with love and affection. As a dad, I don't beat my kids up when they're in pain. Like, I don't reject her when she comes to me for comfort. My posture is one of love and and compassion, and she's my little girl, right? Like, I love her with a fierce, protective, comforting love. And so we've got to stop believing the lie that our performance dictates whether or not our Father loves us, or even worse, whether he will keep us as his kids. We're loved more than we could possibly imagine. And we're loved by a good, good Father who delights in us even in our weakness and our frailty, not because we've earned it, but because we're his kids and he loves us. And if I, as a sinful dad, don't show callous irritation towards my little girl when she is hurting and comes to me for comfort, then why do we assume our heavenly father who's perfect and good and loving would treat us that way? Henry Nouwen on this concept uh, says this, he says, although claiming my identity as a child of God, I still live as though the God to whom I'm returning demands an explanation. I still think about his love as conditional and about home as a place I'm not yet fully sure of. While walking home, I keep entertaining doubts about whether I will be truly welcome when I get there. 
as I look at my spiritual journey, my long and fatiguing trip home, I see how full it is of guilt about the past and worries about the future. I realize my failures and know that I have lost the dignity of my sonship, but I'm not yet able to fully believe that where my failings are great, grace is always greater. Still clinging to my sense of worthlessness, I project for myself a place far below that which belongs to the Son. Belief in total, absolute forgiveness does not come readily. I will go to God and ask for forgiveness in the hope that I will receive a minimal punishment and be allowed to survive on the condition of hard labor. Are you operating that way when it comes to your relationship with your Heavenly Father? Are you living as if his love for you is conditional or contingent upon you performing at a certain level? Are you constantly fearful that he's about to uh, pounce on you because of your ongoing struggle with this or that sin pattern? I wonder how many of us view God in that way. Maybe we wouldn't have realized it until we're even hearing it described now. But we're living as if he were harsh and always ready to just pounce on us and to So we've got to always be ready to come up with a good excuse for when we approach him as if we've got to try to appease uh, his irritation or his disgust with us as if he's this grumpy father just looking up from heaven about which of his kids he can punish when they're the most vulnerable. Or I wonder if any of us feel like, all right, well, maybe I just need to work really, really hard to be good enough. Then I might be able to earn my keep in my father's kingdom as a slave but we presume that we've already sinned too much to be welcomed back as his beloved son or daughter. I wonder how many of us feel unworthy to be called the son or daughter of God. The word of God says that if you've trusted in Jesus, you are worthy. John 1 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As believers in Christ, we can no more undo our adoption than we can undo the will of God. He has willed for us to be his kid. He's willed for you to be his child. He has adopted us. He has set his everlasting love upon us. He has redeemed us through the blood of Jesus in spite of and because of our sinfulness. So who are we to think that our brokenness can undo the sovereign will and the sovereign love of our Heavenly Father? You are worthy to be called the child of God because through faith you are a child of God. That is your identity. You can't change who you are. Uh, You can't change who you have become in Christ. Uh, God has given you the identity as his child and your behavior can't impact that. You're already his kid. You can no more undo that than the prodigal could undo being his father's son or my little girl could undo being my daughter. She is my daughter. She can't change that because she steals Nutella. And if we've trusted in Jesus and surrendered our lives to God, we can't change the fact of our adoption any more than my little girl could change the fact that she's my little girl. So can we please stop living as if we aren't actually God's kids? Can we please stop living as if God doesn't like us when we struggle? Can we stop living as if we have to earn our way back uh, into his good graces when we struggle? Or can we please stop believing the lie that we should just settle for being a hired hand out in the fringes of the kingdom of God rather than being a beloved son or daughter of the king? Through Christ, you are 
a beloved child of the Most High God. Like, he loves you so much more than you can possibly fathom. He loves you so much more than you can tell, I love my little girl. And he wants you to live as if that is true because it is. Verse 20. You see, as the prodigal returns home, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. It says, as soon as the father saw him, he felt compassion. And that compassion drove him to a dead sprint straight to wrap his arms around his son. The father feels compassion for his kids and their brokenness. And we see here in this story what that compassion looks like. This is what God wants you to know his compassion for you looks like, like a father running with all of his might to wrap his son up in an embrace. But I wonder, like, is that normally how you think of God reacting to you when you repent? And if not, I wonder why that is. The, the father reacted that way as soon as he saw his son way off in the distance. He didn't, you know, wait for him to make it all the way back and kind of make him, you know, sweat it out. He didn't go inside and make his son knock at the door before he answered. He didn't send a servant to answer at the door and make his son wait in the lobby for a while to really feel the weight of what he had done wrong. No, he ran every inch of that long distance between him and his son, and he immediately wrapped him in a bear hug. His compassion compelled him to run toward his son. And can you imagine what the son would have been feeling emotionally at that moment when he sees his father sprinting toward him? Like what he must have been experiencing, uh, or I'm not experiencing, expecting, which would be like anger, rebuke, shunning as he's walking back down this path versus what he actually encountered, his father welling up with compassion, sprinting to him, a father who cannot get to him fast enough, a father who wraps him in his arms after all the ways that he had hurt him all the ways that he had shamed his dad and disgraced him, and yet all he gives his son is love. Can you imagine your heavenly father running towards you in that way? With compassion-filled tears streaming down his face, arms wide, and, and ready to scoop you up in his arms. This is the picture that Jesus wants us to have for the Father and his posture towards us in our brokenness. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring in his hand and shoes on his feet. So after being mauled in this loving embrace, the son starts to deliver his rehearsed speech that he's got ready to go. But his father interrupts him. Like, he doesn't even entertain his, uh, his speech long enough to acknowledge it. He's too overwhelmingly filled with joy to see his son. His son, not his servant. The idea that his beloved son would be this hired worker in his home was so absurd that the father didn't even uh, pause long enough to respond to that statement from his son. His son had returned home, and he is filled with joy and love. So he exchanges his son's tattered clothes for the finest robe. He puts a ring on his finger and shoes on his likely dirty and blistered feet. And the ring would have uh, had a, probably had a seal on it that represented being a fully acknowledged member of the family, which points us again back to that Ephesians 1 truth that we have this seal as believers of the Holy Spirit who guarantees our inheritance and gives us assurance that we are indeed beloved children of the Most High God. 
just like the prodigal was indeed his, his father's beloved son. The father welcomes home a son, not a servant. And he's flooded with joy. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So after all the younger son did, after all the pain and the anguish that he put his father through, this was not the reaction that he expected. And it isn't the reaction that Jesus' hearers expected either. Remember, this is in the context, this story is in the context of the religious leaders blasting Jesus and uh, for spending time with tax collectors and, uh, and sinners with people like the younger son in our, in our story. And so in response, Jesus tells these parables to illustrate the father's posture towards his children that are caught and ensnared in sin. And it couldn't be further what the, 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 from what the scribes and the Pharisees would have expected. Like God's love for sinners would have seemed shocking, even scandalous to them. So here they are rebuking Jesus for how he's loving on sinners, and Jesus responds by illustrating to them uh, that he is simply reflecting the lavish love that their father has for straying sheep, for missing coins, and for prodigal sons. It doesn't make sense for him to love sinners. It doesn't make sense to leave 99 sheep to go find the one that's lost. It doesn't make sense to light up every corner of your house to find one lost coin when you got all these other coins over here. It doesn't make sense for a holy God to send his son to die in place of those who were hostile and rebelling against him. And then to adopt them into his family as beloved children. It seems crazy to us as humans, but God's love really is that good. It really is that massive and it really is that boundless. And I wonder how different your life would be if you lived as if this really was the Heavenly Father's posture towards you. That he runs towards you in your suffering, in your sin, in your brokenness. That he covers your shame with the best clothing and puts a ring on your finger uh, to remind you when you're doubting it that you really are his child that he loves. That instead of a harsh and angry rebuke, he throws a party because he cannot contain the joy and the love that he feels for his child coming home. Can you picture God the Father this way when you're struggling with your sin and brokenness or despair? Or do you presume like the prodigal did that I strayed too far? to ever be received back as his kid? Are we resigning ourselves to, at best, a fringe existence in the kingdom, hoping to maybe someday earn our way back as a slave? I want to ask you to try to picture your heavenly father sprinting towards you, ready to tackle you in that loving embrace at the height of your brokenness, at the time where you feel the most shame the most discouraged, the most weary, the most unlovable. That's how Jesus tells us the Father behaves towards his kids. Even in our brokenness, he delights in us and he has compassion for us and that overpowers the strength of our sin. He won't even let you finish your sentence about earning back a place in his house as a servant. The concept of losing your status as his child is so absurd, he won't even give it the dignity of a response. 
And plus, he's too busy celebrating that you've returned and planning a feast to celebrate how much he loves you. Your father runs towards you. Even in your deepest, darkest sin and brokenness, your father runs towards you. He feels compassion and he pursues you. And he celebrates his love for you in the most lavish rejoicing imaginable. That is the posture of our good father towards his children. Let's pray. God, I, I'm overwhelmed by the love that you have for me, the love that you have for each one of your kids, the fact that we can even be that. It's amazing. God, we're meant to see the depths of our own sin and rebellion in this story. And it's dark. We have darkness in our hearts. There's, there's deep pain that we've uh, inflicted upon you and how we've sinned and rebelled against you. And Lord, for your, for your kindness to give us this story, to show us what your heart is like towards your kids as they return home with heads hanging low, feeling shame and despair at our brokenness. The fact that your posture, God, is one that you are sprinting towards us with arms wide and tears of compassion streaming down your face, ready to wrap us up in your arms and show us so powerfully how much you love us. Despite, despite our brokenness, despite our sin, God, I thank you for that picture. God, the fact that you would give us that in your word because you want us to know that's who you are. Please, God, break down any of the walls in any of our hearts or minds that are holding us back and keeping us from walking as if that's true. Because if we really will live as if that's who you are and that is who you are, if we'll really live that way, God, I know that it would change everything about our lives. And so I pray that your spirit would empower us to feel and to understand and to know the depth and the height and the width and the breadth of your love for us as your kids. I pray that you would silence the lies of the enemy that would speak accusation and despair into our hearts and we would remember the gospel that we've been rescued and adopted because you love us that deeply and that we would live in our identity as your kids. May we be blessed in this truth, in power, in Jesus' name, amen.